The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC and welcome to those of you joining online. Do want to say to those joining online, I'm always surprised when I learn about somebody um, watching online because sometimes I feel like ah, probably nobody watching online. Uh, but I met somebody uh, Friday night at the Blue Valley West basketball game and they proceeded to tell me that their brother had been um, watching online and they didn't, they didn't know each other that that they knew me. She's like, oh, I know them. You should go. Da, da, da. So if you're watching, bro, you should come. Like, we'd love to have you in person. It's always fun for us when somebody moves from t- attending online to actually showing up on Sunday morning. They, they become an integral part of our uh, family. Is Ashley in here? Ashley and Joe? Oh, Joe's in here. See, Joe's here. Ashley's not in here. Oh, look, you come in late. You got caught. You got caught. (laughs) Ashley attended online before she ever came. And then I met Joe. And then Joe invited me to hunt his farm. Thank you, Lloyd. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So we love it when people move from attending online to uh, being in person. So we're thankful for that and would encourage you to come. uh, If you haven't uh, taken that step yet, you would be glad you did. And we'll be glad to meet you when you get here. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but it has happened to me and happens to me more times than I wish that it would. When I get up in the middle of the night and I either have to go to the bathroom or I'm thirsty and I'm going to the kitchen and I trip over something that usually is not there. And then you're like, who put that there, right? And it hurts your foot, hurts your toe, and you begin to blame the object and you are, you're frustrated. Um, if it's your spouse, you definitely want to ruin their sleep and let them know how they messed your uh, toe up in that moment. Uh, it's never fun to stumble over something. Uh, and, and really, at the end of the day, it's usually our fault. A lot of times I'm walking out when I'm hunting and I've got all my gear on and everything, um, and I'll trip over a stick and, and sometimes fall down. And then you kind of look and make sure nobody's can see you. You're very thankful there's no YouTube around at that mo- moment in time. Somebody capturing for YouTube anyway. So anyway, uh, it's, it's a really frustrating experience that uh, we, we, can, we can actually get hurt from. Um, I've learned now that I'm a little bit older when, I'm, when I trip like that, uh, I don't try to catch myself anymore. I just go down. Just try to tuck and roll. That seems to be the safer, safer uh, way to handle that. We're going to talk about stumbling today. Um, Paul, he talks a lot about a person stumbling and what they stumble over in Romans chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to uh, turn there. It's a, a challenging passage of Scripture when we get to chapter 9. Um, Romans chapters 1 through 8, Paul is dealing with, um, you know, the how culture can just spiral out of control and depravity happens and delusional thinking can happen in a society. And he talks about how everybody uh, falls short of the glory of God and stands in need of uh, justification, which God has to do on our part in order for us to be in a right relationship with him. When he gets to chapter 9 and chapter 9, 10, and 11, there's sort of this section that he starts to deal with the, the nation of Israel itself. And then in verses 12 and following, uh, he starts and takes all that we learned about the justification and shows us how to live it out practically uh, in our lives. 
For me, when it comes to the Jewish people, I've often like scratched my head and like, how did they miss Jesus? Like, how did the nation of Israel miss that Jesus was the Messiah? And that's troubled me, um, trying to think through, how did they reject him? I mean, he was a Jew, and all of these prophecies about him he fulfills, and, and how did they uh, do that? And, and since God, um, the, the second question we might have is, God has turned from pouring out his blessing on the nation of Israel to pouring out his blessing on the church. And so now the, the relationship or covenant that God has with people goes beyond the Jewish covenant that he had from Abraham and Isaac on down through Moses and David that the Messiah would come. Now the Messiah has come and it is open to the Gentiles, which is us unless you're Jewish, right? So the Gentile world is now opened up uh, to the covenant promise uh, of God. So did God, since he turned from the nation of Israel, did he not keep his promise that he originally made? And will he keep his promise to the church, one might ask? Well, chapter 9 begins to deal with that. And Paul begins to deal with that. It deals with the sovereignty of God. <laughs> Here we go. A professor has said, if you try to explain the sovereignty of God, you may lose your mind. And if you try to explain it away, you may lose your soul. So that's my task today. I'm not going to try to explain it. I simply come to the sovereignty of God, and I see that God knows all, um, and I see that God says that he knows things before we um, decide them. He knows what we're going to decide, how we're going to decide it. He already is there. Um, he is functioning in time and is beyond time, but God is also predetermined that we have a free will. And we look at that and go, well, how do you reconcile those two things? I like what um, Spurgeon said, you don't need to reconcile friends, right? They go together. And our finite minds really can't comprehend something that is so far beyond us. So I'm not going to try to uh, explain that because I don't think that it's possible. People have been debating and trying to um, walk through the sovereignty of God, the free will of man since they've been studying theology in the, in the Bible itself. Uh, what I simply do is go, I see that God is sovereign and I see that he has told me in his word that man has free will. And those two things work in conjunction together. As I respond, that free will is all I can do is have faith in what God has done. And that's how I enter into a right relationship with him. So I'll do my best to work us through some of chapter 9, but I will tell you that it is a challenging chapter for me to wrap my mind around and certainly for me to try to teach, and there are some things the Lord has shown me from it um, that I think are encouraging that, that uh, are important for all of us to know. Paul is an interesting fellow, the Apostle Paul. He is called of God. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, um, a Pharisee, which means he knew the law, and if you look at the Apostle Paul, what's interesting about him is he is to Judaism, which is like Israel's religion, he is to Judaism what Judas is to Christianity. Judas betrayed Christ, turned his back on him, sold him for 30 pieces of silver, and walked away. And Paul was... Like, and so, so Judas was picked by the Lord. Like, 
He was one of the apostles. Whereas Paul is one of the members of the leaders uh, among the Jewish religious teachers. And he's up and coming and, and going to be a, play a significant role uh, within the, um, the culture of Judaism or the religion and faith. And it was really their whole lives. Uh, the most influential people in a Jewish community at, at that time certainly would have been the rabbis and the teachers and the leaders. And Paul turned his back on all of it and walked away from it. And this put him in a position where um, they, they hated him. I mean, they hated Paul because Paul had a brilliant mind. He understood the Old Testament scriptures um, like he was one of the best teachers of that day, one of the best teachers ever, um, the Apostle Paul. And now he's flipped from being anti-Jesus to saying Jesus was God in the flesh. And so he's on the other side now. And none of the Jewish people like him. And when he first starts his ministry, none of the Christians like him because he was literally the person that was trying to stop Christianity. He was persecuting them. The first person who was ever martyred for their faith was a guy by the name of Stephen, and he was stoned to death. And Paul was the one who gave approval for the guys to stone him and kill him. And so he was responsible for trying to stop everything that the movement of Christ was having in the lives of people after he was had risen from the dead. Paul was trying to stop and then Christ, the risen Christ, um, came to Paul directly and appeared to him and did a miracle in his life and called him to be a servant of the gospel. And he said, I've chosen you. You're a chosen instrument that you're going to take the gospel to the Gentile world. And so there in the beginning of his ministry, the people who were believers in Christ were afraid of him. They were like, are we sure about this guy? I mean, maybe he's just here to kind of get a, get in and then he's going to turn on us. And eventually they came to see that, no, he had a genuine conversion, had met the Lord, and he certainly had walked away from um, Judaism as they had been taught it all their lives, as they were all responding to the, the truth of Christ. And so it is in that context that he's functioning. And there were a lot of people who were upset with him, people that he did life with. Possibly his, his parents may have been among them, certainly some of his relatives, certainly some of his former colleagues and friends uh, would have been upset with what he was doing and said, man, he is ruining our heritage. He's ruining everything about us. And so they could have, uh, they actually not only could have, they did try to stop him. And they were talking about how he was bringing such harm and he didn't care anything about where he came from. And so it is in that context that, that Paul writes chapter 9, and he starts and he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. And so Paul just starts with, man, I love my people. And he says, even in this moment, I love my people so much that if it were possible, I would give up my salvation 
in order for the nation of Israel to come to a saving knowledge in Christ. That's how he was expressing himself um, to them. And so the first thing I want you to take away from today's passage is that people need to have our hearts before they could ever hear our theology. Before we ever start trying to talk to people about our relationship with the Lord or their relationship with the Lord and how they may need to change in their way of thinking, the first thing they need to have is our hearts. They need to, we need to genuinely love people uh, before we're trying to share with them. Now, I know sometimes that we may be in a situation where there's not time for a relationship to foster and, and the moment calls for it. But even in those moments, it ought to be, it ought to be given in a, uh, from a heart and position of love and compassion and empathy and care as we look at a person and recognize, man, like we are called to love people. Even people that don't think like us and don't act like us and don't believe like us, we still should love them. That's what Paul is saying, man, I love my people. Um, They're the people of God who he chose to give the Old Testament law to. He, He raised up all the prophets. They are the people through whom God began to speak to all of the world and say, I would bring a Messiah that would fix all the problems of the world. And that Messiah came through them. And a lot of times people um, in that, they think, you know, we hear Jesus and say, well, you, people, I, I'm confused. Maybe you're here today and you're confused. You say, well, I don't understand why you call Jesus um, the son of God. And then you worship Jesus. And then sometimes it feels like you're saying Jesus is God. Well, we are saying that Jesus is God in the flesh. I say, well, I thought the Bible said that Jesus was God's son. Well, here you can clearly see where the apostle Paul, who had encountered the risen Christ, he says in verse 5 that theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. That would be Jesus, the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. So when we talk about God God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, They're all three God, but they're all three somehow. It's sort of like trying to explain the sovereignty of God. It's by faith we accept it because we see it taught in Scripture. But it is God the Son as a manifestation of God in physical flesh that we recognize as Jesus. God the Holy Spirit is a manifestation of God in spirit who indwells in the believer because of what God the Son did physically. He makes a way for us to be right with God the Father. And so all three are the same God. They're not three different gods. They're three distinct personalities of the same Godhead. It's a triune God. Godhead and him manifesting himself to us. And so he's saying, man, that Jesus was God in the flesh. And, and I, I, I just think it's important for us that as we're walking through life and we're understanding, man, God has a purpose for me. Um, one of the things in that purpose, really the only thing, the most important thing about your life as a believer is the sharing of the good news of the gospel. That's the most important thing and how it plays out in your life. And so If you're going to be able to share the good news of the gospel, and it's consistently touching your life and the kingdom is breaking out, then you need to have um, love for people, and and people need to know um, that they have your heart. 
And sometimes it might take a week for someone to come to a realization that they have your heart. Sometimes it might take a month. Sometimes it might take five years. God may put a person in your life that you are to love on for five years and they are to have your heart before you're able to ever really share the gospel with them. But we should not be trying to just plow our way like a snowplow, just blowing down the road, teaching people about the gospel. That's not how it works. Even for Paul, man, he's like, he, he loved these people and he wanted to communicate to these people that he loved them and they were wrong whenever they were thinking that he didn't love them. He loved them dearly and would even, if it were possible, give up his relationship with the Lord that they might come to know him. And that is a deep love that we only find, um, we find it in Moses. Moses, whenever God was upset in the Old Testament, he says, blot my name out. If you're going to do that, and 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 what are why do we see these things? They're, they're teaching us about the love of God. Um, we see it uh, in, in Jesus. Jesus gives His life that we might know Him and be right with Him. And I like here how it talks about the conscience because every man has a conscience. Every woman has a conscience. Every human being has a conscience. But He's saying. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. The conscience that is surrendered to the Lord becomes reliable and can be trusted because it is guided by the Word and the Holy Spirit. So once I meet the Lord and I'm surrendered to the Lord, my conscience is redeemed. So a conscience is given to every human being so that they can morally understand the, the law of God that is written on every human being. You want to say, what, a, what are one of the um, arguments for the existence of God? We would say it's the moral law. Like everybody, you don't have to teach people that's not right. They just think that. You say, well, does everybody think that? And if you get into a debate with me and you want to come and debate me about that, I would slap you in the face. And you would immediately say, that's not right. You can't do that. Why? Why what, what grounds do you have to tell me that I cannot slap you in the face? It's because there's a moral law written on your heart. It is the law of God that teaches all men that that's not right. And God has given us a conscience that we can know right from wrong. Well, when we are saved and we come into a right relationship with Christ as Paul is in, he says, I speak the truth in, in, in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Now my conscience now is in um, unity with the Spirit of God. And so now I can trust my conscience in a way that I could not before because I'm walking in fellowship with God. And as I'm surrendered to God, then the conscience becomes more and more reliable. And, and it, it is because it is working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Now, what's interesting about that is the more we, we surrender to His will and Word, the more we love as God does. He said, Jesus, what's, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? It's the greatest commandment, Jesus, in all of the word. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And the second one, he said, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So all the law and prophets hang on those two things. 
And so as I surrender more to the Lord, to his word and his will, the more that I will love God and the greater ability I will have to love people because my conscience will be working in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to lead me down the path of righteousness. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be on the narrow road that leads to life as opposed to the wide road that leads to destruction because I'm walking in fellowship with God. And so Paul is saying, man, I, I, you, you've got my heart, and I want you guys to know you've got my heart. And he's teaching us along the way the power of the conscience working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. But now he's about to drop some theology on them. And so when we think in terms of, of this is, is, did God not keep his promise to Israel? when he opened up the gospel to the or the the covenant to the gentiles well paul says it is not as though god's word had failed for not all who are descended from israel are israel nor because they are his descendants are they all abraham's children on the contrary it is through isaac that your offspring will be reckoned in other words it is not children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is um, the children of, of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, what in the world is that talking about? Well, God had made a promise to Abraham and he told him that I will make you into a father of many nations. And Abram's name was changed from Abram to Abraham, which meant father of many nations. And when Abram met people and they'd say, what is your name? He'd say, my name is Abraham, which means father of many nations. How many sons you got, bro? None. It's a very embarrassing thing for Abraham. And so um, they took it in their own hands, whether it, was, it seemed to be more out of Sarah's prompting, but it was totally them together. And it took a handmaid, Hagar, and said, hey, Abraham, take her and have kids with her. I'm not going to be able to have kids. And so if, if we're going to have any kids and you're really going to be the father of nations, we need to get this thing started, right? And so they ha he has a child, um, Ishmael, uh, through uh, Hagar, I believe. If I get my names incorrect, forgive me. Um, but So they have this child, and... God says, it's not through that child that it's going to happen. And you can take it in your own human hands as much as you want. And he waited until Sarah was in her 90s and Abraham was in his 90s, well beyond the ability to have a child. The womb was dead, and that's when she conceived of Isaac. It is the children of the promise. And so he's saying the people who are the Israelites will come through Isaac's line, not through the other boy, okay? And so as we walk through that and say, well, so we got one, one, dad, one dad, two moms in that situation. Not only that, he says, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So now he takes it to the boy Isaac, and he says, 
Now Isaac's going to have boys. It is the natural order of things that the first boy is the boy who's going to have the birthright and all of these things. But it is the younger that is going to serve. And it is determined before they're ever born that the line of the Messiah would be through the younger twin, Jacob, and not Esau. And so he's saying, why is this the case? Because it is not by works, but by him who calls. In the first one, he says, it's not by uh, the children of physical descent, but the children of the promise. And so he's, again, he's building a case. Now, when it says, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. Now, I remember when I read that the first time, I was like, that, what, that's not right. What do you mean? Like, what did Esau do? Like, I mean, Jacob is a better name than Esau, but, but, but like that just didn't, and it didn't sit well with me. Well, one, um, God, this is, this is referring to election in nations, okay? So when this is said, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, it is a Jewish idiom, and it really means more like Jacob I preferred over Esau. And the Edomites uh, were the descendants of Esau, and they did something very evil in the eyes of God during the uh, Babylonian captivity, I believe it was. We studied about it during the Minor Prophets. But they, they should have come to the aid of Israel, and they did not. They rejoiced when Israel, Israel was attacked, and they even hoped that they would perish. And God held that against them because of their wickedness and the way that they were rebelling. And so uh, we see that that is not by works, but by him who calls. So he starts with, with, the, with the first um, there with um, uh, Isaac, and then he takes it on through the lineage of Jacob. And then we're all looking at that, and we're going, man, that doesn't seem right. And so Paul says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And so we read that and God, it sounds like God has raised up Pharaoh just for the purpose of hardening him. It's important to note that no person in the scripture that is recorded to have been hardened by God is not first said that they hardened themselves toward God first. And we know that even in the second chapter or first chapter of Romans, it says that God, as a person begins to um, rebel from the truth that is revealed to him, even in the created order, that God will give him over to a depraved mind and his thinking will become delusional. And so then that is a hardening that, that, that begins to uh, set in. And, and God is trying to show us here Something very, very important, and we'll get into, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to uh, trace it out. But, but we, we read that, and he says, man, that, that is, God is raising up Pharaoh for hardening. And again, again we say, man, that doesn't feel right. Does that make you feel that way? Well, that's why Paul said, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? 
For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? It says, as he says in Hosea, hundreds of years before Christ would come, this was written. In the book of Hosea, this prophet. Now, this is a prophet who was called of God to go and take a wife who was a harlot. And she um, engages in harlotry. And so he marries this woman. She runs off with him. and uh, 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 First of all, she marries him, and he has a kid with her. Then she runs off. And then he goes back, and he gets her and brings her back home. And he has another kid with her. And she runs off on him again. And she's just engaging in all this promiscuous and adultery, and she keeps running off, and God keeps telling, go back and get her. Go back and get her and marry her again. And so God is telling something very important about his relationship to the nation of Israel. And Paul is referring that uh, to that here, and he, he says... As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Now, what's fascinating is hundreds of years before this was written, um, God says to uh, this prophet Hosea to go take this wife, and each one of these children are given a name, and they mean um, my people, not my people, my people once again right? That's what the names were given to the kids. Why? Why? Because it was saying of the Jewish people, they're, they become his people, then they're not his people, then they become his people again. And we know that a remnant is going to be saved. I'm not going to be able to get into that today that talks uh, you know, the, about eschatology. In the future, there will be a revival among the Jewish people, okay? A Christian awakening will happen among many Jewish people in the future. But right now, Paul, Paul is just trying to show that, hey, like, um, Here's how God is interacting with us, and, and, and he's trying to show them his care for the Jewish people. And then he goes on, he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah, Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Now, what all is being said here? Well, there are some significant things. First of all, we need to key in on that not all Israel is Israel. And it's not the children by physical descent that makes a person an Israelite, is what God is saying. He said, you may be born in, through the lineage, but it is not based upon the lineage that you were born in that makes you a part of Israel. Um, he says, it is not by works, but by him who calls. Nor uh, He says, and it does not depend on human desire or, or effort, but on God's mercy. And so God is, is communicating very clearly that 
The people who are a part of Israel are the people who are walking in a place of faith. Not all Israel is Israel. And not everybody who comes to church is a part of the church. I don't know if you're a part of the real church. What is the real church? The real church is the body of Christ. You know Christ. You've been called of the Lord. He has set you free from your sins, and he has done a work in your life. And it is not based upon um, your works, but, a by, uh, but on his call. It is not a physical birth. It is a spiritual birth. This is why Jesus said you must be born again if you want to receive the kingdom of heaven. And it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And so that brings us to this takeaway. Jesus chooses us before we ever choose him. And so in faith, we are responding to the call of God. And, and we have the choice as to whether or not we take our human will and surrender to the call of God that he places on our lives. It is a big deal when the opportunity for us to respond is presented. If you walk around with an American cavalier attitude of, I'll get around to it, you, friend, may be in danger of your heart hardening and God allowing to your, heart, your heart to harden. This is exactly what is being taught in Scripture. And so we don't just decide, oh, I think I'll be a Christian. You cannot become a Christian, Jesus said, unless the Father draws you unto himself. In uh, John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, I didn't, you did not choose me, I chose you. And so we respond to the call of God upon our lives. And, and, and that's why it's a big deal. And, and if we reject a revelation, then our heart gets hard and you're hardening, you hardening it can be given over by God to where it becomes so hard that you'll never even care anymore. And we look at this and we go, man, it just feels like God, he's allowing some people to be raised up and they're going to be condemned. And that's the way our natural, like that's the way we think in our minds. Because it's not right. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not fair. What is fair is that every single human being ever, Jew and Gentile, spend eternity in hell. That's fair. So when we look at this, we ought to be exclaiming, I can't believe the mercy of God has touched my life. And when we look at a person who the mercy of God has not touched their life, we ought not be looking down on them. We ought to be thanking the Lord that he has touched my life. And we ought not be looking down on anybody in society because it is but for the grace of God, there go I. And so we look at this and we go, man, the mercy of God has touched my life and I need to be in touch with that. I need to be aware of what God has done to spare me from my own sin. I'm not better than anybody. It is only the mercy of God that has put me in a right relationship with him. And so all I can do is choose to respond to what he re reveals. So he goes on and he fi finishes and he says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? 
because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Here's the last takeaway. The sovereignty of God does not negate human responsibility. Okay? Just because God is sovereign and he knows even before we choose, you see, we could, and I, can't, I can't dive into this, okay, because we're all going to, I'm already hungry, right? <laughs> so, but, but God is already in the future. He functions in time. We, we are living in between a, a, a start and an end, and God is functioning in the start and the end of time, but he's already beyond time because he's omnipresent. He already knows what's going to happen in the after, and he already knows what happened before, so he just knows he's God. And, and again, boy, you start to try to wrap your mind around all that, and it becomes very difficult. And that's, again, where we walk and understand that we're walking in faith, that God's ways are not our ways. Um, he's much higher than us, but, but he, in his sovereignty, he is sovereignly ordained that man can have a free will. And we have a responsibility to respond to the truth that he reveals to us, and it determines our destiny. Now, I know that it's not popular, um, to talk about hell. I don't even like to talk about hell, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to talk about hell today. <laughs> Can't wait to get to church, man. <laughs> but it is a reality. And as much of a reason as I have to believe in heaven, I have to believe in hell. The same scripture that teaches me about the one location teaches me about the other. And it is hellish to think about spending eternity separated from the creator of the universe. And so we look at this and we go, man, what is going on here? Is God sending people to hell? No. All who are there deserve it, right? So the deal is, is that God is not responsible for a sin that a human willingly engages in and does not seek forgiveness from him. So sinners fit themselves for hell, but it is God that prepares saints for heaven. Because what am I going to do to correct my sin? It's not by physical descent. It is a spiritual um, that I inherit it. It is not by works, but it is by him who calls. And it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. All I can do is receive it. It is the free gift of God. And so just as just the right time, when they tried to take it into their own hands and Abraham and Sarah tried to have this other son by physical descent in their own way without God's um, telling them and following and trusting God, it isn't going to happen, and it will not happen uh, for us at, either. But it says just at the right time, Sarah's womb opened, and she conceived of Isaac. And the Word tells us in the New Testament at just the right time, when the time was perfect, God sent his son born of a virgin. A, a miraculous birth. And so it is the gospel, it is a, it is a, it is a forecasting uh, of the gospel that would come through the power of Christ. And it brings us to the big idea. You're either standing on or stumbling over Jesus. That's it. 
Everybody in this room, you are either standing on or you are stumbling over Jesus. And at the end of the day, each of us has to decide what we're going to do with Jesus. And some of you are probably stumbling over Jesus and don't even realize it. Now, I do a lot of filming this, this time of year. All of my hunts, I film and um, film for a show called it, it, uh, Part of the Drury's, uh, Drury Outdoors, if you're into that stuff. Shay and I do that. And it's like, big deal. It's work. It's awful. Some of it's awful. It causes, causes me to miss deer all the time. Like a giant deer. Oh, no, that's therapy. That's another session. <laughs> <laughs> but I do a lot of filming, and I have a drone, and sometimes I'll film these shots of a farm I'm hunting. And um, I started having trouble with this drone. I, when I went on my elk hunt this fall, and I flew the thing, man, it was, it was having trouble. It was magnetic interference. And I'm like upgrading the software on the app and like, what is wrong with my drone? And I flew it like four or five times and it would get up and it would start. I couldn't control it anymore. And it would say it wanted to come back home. And I'm like, what? This is useless. And I used it like five times. And I used it yesterday and it did it to me yesterday. And I was trying to fly my drone and I got it. Just get it up. It's a few hundred, a couple hundred feet, man. Not even that high. And it's already saying magnetic interference. I restart the app, restart my phone, restart. And then I looked at my phone. I bought this fancy schmancy cover that I love that has a magnet on it about that big around. And it hooks to my controller, and that's how I can see what my drone is looking at. So the whole time, the last four or five months that my drone has been useless, it is because I've been stumbling over something that has been right in front of me the whole time. And that's what it's like sometimes to stumble over Jesus. You don't know you're stumbling over Jesus. And what you have to understand is that when you move from stumbling over him to standing on him, and that's what Paul is teaching the, Gent uh, the, the Jewish people, is like, then God said in this prophecy that he would lay that stone there, and it would either be the cornering stone that you would build your life on and stand on, or you will stumble over it. And so... <laughs> It's very easy to be in a, a position where you're stumbling and you're frustrated and you don't know why you're stumbling and you don't recognize it's because of the way that you're responding to who Jesus is. As opposed to standing on him as the savior of the world, you're stumbling over him and he's right there. And what I would say to you is it doesn't matter how much you serve. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how much money you give. It doesn't matter how many homeless people you help. It doesn't matter if you are the best volunteer at this church in your generation. If you're not standing on Jesus, you are not right with him. Like all of that stuff comes, like I don't preach because I'm like, I'm trying to be a good guy and I want to be a good example for you guys. That's not why I preach. Why I preach is because I recognize I was stumbling over Jesus and when I started standing on him, I was blown away about how good life was and how easy um, things became from a standpoint of understanding what's happening around me, the peace that flooded my soul and the joy. And I just started walking with the and as I was standing on him, I wanted to tell people. 
And he started using me to tell people. And I started telling people. And before long, I recognized, men, God is using me to tell people. And, and I was starting to lead a group. And then I started to lead a church. And people started paying me to make a living so that I could tell them about Jesus, which is a blessing. It's a huge blessing, right? I'm not going to get rich, but if you understood how wealthy I already am. Uh, like, I'm just like, I'm, I'm good, right? And, and, uh, and so what I want you to hear in that is like, I'm not trying to make this a me statement, right? I just want you to hear that I, man, I want everybody to stand on Jesus. I don't want you to stumble over him. And I want to do everything that I can to try to teach the gospel as clearly as I possibly can and have a heart that has a heart for people that we teach them about what it really means to follow Jesus. That it's not about, it's not about what we do. It's about who we are. And when we understand who we are, we'll do what we're supposed to do. And so as we partake of communion today, I want you to um, rest in those words. Um, rest in those words. I'm going to ask you to bow in a spirit of prayer. The word tells us not to partake of communion in an unworthy manner. And so the communion cups are in the seat back in front of you or the seat back behind you. <laughs> and um, what I would encourage you to do, man, is if you don't know the Lord, you need to give your life to the Lord. You need to move from stumbling to standing. And that would be the first thing, a prayer of surrender of your life. If you do know the Lord and you're not walking with him, what do I mean by that? Like you're, you're kind of rebelling. You're in a practice of sin. Not We're all sinners. Like we all, none, nobody's perfect, okay? But there's a difference in being committed and being uncommitted. And so if you're uncommitted to the Lord right now, you should not partake of communion unless you're going to commit and recommit to your life to the Lord. Uh, because you don't want to do it in an unworthy manner. You want to be worthy. Like, what does this mean? It means that Jesus did what Paul wished he could do to save Israel. He gave his life in order that we might be in a right relationship with the creator of the universe. And so we remember as we partake of the bread, we remember his body. As we drink the juice, we remember his blood that was spilled to forgive us of our sins. And so I want to encourage you to, this is a self-directed, like you don't, we're not going to do this as a body all simultaneously. Sean's going to sing and we'll have one final song. And at any point during this song, your, your personal worship, you partake of communion and thank the Lord for what he's done to make a way possible for you to know him. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you um, for your goodness, for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, you, you are merciful. <laughs> That's overwhelming. The, if I could just, the more I stop and just think about it, it's overwhelming to think you're merciful to me. Um, and I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here today, that you have shown mercy, that you have called and they have responded to your call. And I pray that we would carry forth the good news of the gospel as you've commanded us to do. 
We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name and amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.